Part 1 1. Italia, falling in love It is no great revelation that certain countries or cities can become shorthand for a feeling, that their very name becomes one with an ethos or experience. Hawaii, Thailand, New York. The name of the place automatically conjures a mental picture, so much so that when you say you're going there, others will immediately intuit what sort of holiday or experience you will have. Hawaii, for instance, is cocktails in tiki bars and old dudes doing the shaka, surfing on longboards, garlands of lays, Elvis Presley movies, volcanic rock and swimming with giant turtles. In Thailand, you will float in aquamarine waters, eat green curry, drink fresh mango juice, tuk-tuk to markets and marvel at strange foods and maybe wash an elephant in a village stream. New York is the subway and musicals and eccentricity on the streets. It is the Met and Empire state of mind and sex in the city, hopefully not the lamentable second movie, in a glittering, tumbling urban front-loader. Of course, this is not necessarily the case. You could be in any of these places working as a nurse or a builder covered in limestone and dust. You may be a free-running, teetotaling Instafluencer who consumes their surrounds for likes. You may spend the day in a funk, weeping in your fourth-floor red-brick freeway-facing apartment. Just as we don't know the inner workings of each other's lives, so it is with a foreign country. We have no idea of the way in which it will open up to us and us to it. And yet, we think we do. Few places on earth, it seems, conjure up more of an emotional response than Italy. It is a land that transcends cliché by simply piling on more of them. Afternoon slumbers and wine, church bells and saints, terracotta-coloured villas and washing hanging over balconies, grapevines and pasta and glittering seas and venerated old people. It is cobbled thoroughfares and picture-book villages, Pinocchio and families in the piazza, sliced meats and summer fruits and music on the streets and romance. It is golden light caressing not just the ancient stone buildings upon which it alights, but also those blessed to bask in its rays. Falling in love with a country is like falling in love with a person. You are initially tentative. You start off with a few dates, with a country drive, with dinner. If that goes well, you return for more. Magical outings in which it feels everything is brushed with possibility. Suddenly your heart is singing. You've never looked better. You feel alive like your true unfettered self. You are open and happy and free. You laugh. You see things differently. Mostly, falling in love is not so much about the reality of the other person as it is about how they make you feel about yourself. I wasn't looking to fall in love with Italy. I wasn't expecting it. It just happened. There were seminal moments that made me fall in love. Many were as fleeting as feelings. Sometimes, tellingly, they emerged from chaos. In Milan, we were driving along a narrow street jammed with parked cars on either side. I was looking down from my perch in our idling van into the pit of an adjacent building site. Instead of construction vehicles busying themselves, I saw an archaeological dig, 
A few muted worker bees were sectioning portions of dry earth or brushing off pieces of broken pottery meticulously laid out alongside their roped-off dig. The scene was, we were to discover, a not uncommon occurrence in this old, old country where the earth, when it is moved, will often reveal the past. To us, it was fascinating. So mesmerising that it actually took a while to realise our progress had been halted. We were alerted to our inertia when the drivers around us, impatient with being patient, started leaning on their horns and yelling. One of the children hopped out of the back seat to scout the thoroughfare and see what was causing the hold-up. Their report, breathlessly delivered on their return, was so remarkable we all had to lean out the windows to confirm it for ourselves. Ahead of us, a delivery van had stopped right in the middle of the street. The driver had left his vehicle and was standing on the narrow footpath at the corner of a cafe. There he was, casually downing a shot of espresso. The exasperated tooting and catcalls from the other drivers reached a cacophony before he deigned to acknowledge them. His coffee finished, he twirled his arm in an unflustered, yes, yes, motion, returned to his van, got behind the wheel again, and we all moved off. Near Siena, we were searching for our hillside accommodation in a tiny village intersected rather cruelly some years back by a freeway. The town, once an armoury, was called Armeolo and was now a relative ghost town. Bakery shuttered and the only restaurant seeming permanently closed. We were looking for an agriturismo, farm stay accommodation, we had booked several weeks prior. We had been misled, as so often happens in Italy, by Google Maps, and ended up on a narrow dirt road flanked by tiny plots of farmed land. In the absence of any street numbers and very few houses, we pulled up in front of some old wrought iron gates, behind which was a two-storey, slightly crumbly, dusty rose villa, It seemed like the place, but when we rang the bell, no one answered. Weary of being car-bound, the kids scrambled out and found a track leading up to the hill alongside the house. We followed them and suddenly popped out through the bushes to a scene straight from a European film. There, surrounded by a sparse orchard of olive and stone fruit trees, was a glittering blue swimming pool. Perched on the stone edging, her legs trailing in the water, was a mahogany-skinned goddess in a scrap of a bikini. Lying alongside her, his head cradled on her lap, was an equally bronzed Adonis. He was staring up at her as she stroked his hair. They were smiling and murmuring to each other as an Italian pop song blared tinnily from one of their phones. Even the children were caught short by this idol. We all stood, transfixed for a moment, hot and panting from our thrash through the scrub. Then, feeling like creepy pink interlopers, we called out to them, apologetic, tentative. The lovers looked up at the sound of our voices, not even slightly put out. They sprang to their feet, beaming, welcoming us with profuse apologies, kisses and handshakes. It was indeed our villa. The girl gave us a tour of the house, unselfconsciously still in her damp brown bikini. Then, after showing us the bedrooms, shuttered and lovely, and the kitchen, tiled and spacious, and offering to take us into Siena that night to watch the spectre of the palio, 
a mad horse race and fist fight that takes place in the city square, she walked us back into the far reaches of the backyard and explained the only place the Wi-Fi might work and why she hadn't responded to our earlier messages. Italy, she laughed, simultaneously shaking her head and her phone. Her boyfriend got on a motorbike and roared off, coming back minutes later with milk and bread and coffee. Four days later, some beloved friends from Australia, Nick and Kanye, joined us. We convened first at a castle on a local hill where we mistakenly ordered tripe and, deliberately, crispy porchetta and jugs of local Chianti. They came back to our villa and spent three days by the pool where we drank spritzes, Aperol, and they chain-smoked and laughed with my mother-in-law, Marie. We heard about their travels and tried to mount the giant inflatable popsicle that was the children's hotly contested pool toy. We drove to the village and nibbled from platters of prosciutto and melon and tomatoes and cheese. There was minor major adventure. Yanni and I went foraging roadside for wood for a barbecue and the old flat-capped farmer from below caught us stealing from his pile. We were guilty and apologetic. He sternly pinched Yanni on the cheek then gave us half a dozen split logs, finger-waggingly warning us not to take more. There is a perfect moment captured in memory. I'm floating in the water, face up, eyes closed. The summer sun is projecting spangled rainbows on my eyelids, when suddenly I'm brushed on the shoulder by something. Startled, I open my eyes to see Peter swinging the pool cleaning net towards me. He's laughing and as he manoeuvres the blue mesh towards me on its long pole, I see something nestling inside. It's an apricot he's picked from one of the trees festooning the yard. The fruit is still warm from the sun, its blushing skin studded with freckles. I fish it out of the net, and swimming to the side of the pool, share the apricot with my husband. It is the sweetest, most glorious orb. It is summer in the mouth. It is a gift of love. Again in Milan, we've checked into a small hotel where the seven of us have been allocated a trio of modern rooms plonked on top of a four-storey building. It is peak summer, a 44-degree heatwave. Our rooms are being belted by the blazing sun and the air conditioning doesn't work. The rooms are brutally hot. In one, there's the faint emphysemic panting of air with a telltale whiff of mould, but the others are simply unbearably stifling. We go back and forth to the front desk to inquire about the progress of the engineer who's supposed to be fixing things. The charming man on the front desk explains that, yes, they are having problems with the aircon, but they will have it fixed by the afternoon. This is a lie. As the day wears on, the rooms get hotter and hotter. It's too hot to go out. We're trapped in the sour soup of our rooms, literally dripping with perspiration. In between, an ancient valet appears. He's well over 70, immaculately dressed in a maroon waistcoat and matching pants, despite working in a furnace. He speaks no English and I speak no Italian, but he's well aware there's a problem. In a nod to Manuel from Faulty Towers, his solution is to shift our suitcases from room to room. Every half hour he appears, moves the suitcases and pauses to mop his brow with an immaculately white handkerchief. He shakes his head uncomprehendingly when I ask about the aircon before he disappears. 
Eventually, I realise our patience and polite smiling is not helping. I return downstairs again, this time with purpose. I ask the man at the front counter to move us to another hotel. He explains they've already tried to find us other accommodation, but the World Expo is on and every room in the city is booked. Peter and I have already confirmed this for ourselves upstairs. What about portable air conditioners, I ask. He shrugs. The mobile coolers are already being used by other guests. He's sorry, but there's nothing more they can do. I think it's the shrug that finally sets me off. I am too hot and frazzled for him to Italy his way through this. I take things up a notch. The rooms are impossible to sleep in. It is his hotel. He's taken our booking and our money and it's his responsibility to find somewhere for us to sleep that is not dangerously, ridiculously hot. We have four children who are already exhausted. Now, I inform him, they also have a mother who is angry. I don't know what it is that finally breaks the impasse, whether it's my annoyed tone or the mention of the children. It may even be my status as madre. But whatever it is, the hotel manager comes over and after an impassioned back and forth with two other staff members, proffers his hand. He is sorry. I am right. This is unacceptable. Perhaps we can all share a room on the ground floor they have found for us tonight and they will have things fixed by tomorrow. The ground floor room is large. It has a loft where they will set up extra beds and, he assures me, the air conditioning works. I am so relieved. Finally, a solution. I thank him and he calls over the old valet who heads off up the stairs to move our suitcases once again. As we all troop back downstairs to our temporary ground floor solution, the manager beckons me and Peter over. By further way of apology, he explains, they would like to offer us dinner at a local restaurant. It's a very nice restaurant, he explains, and we would dine as guests of the hotel. We accept his offer, and after taking turns to shower in the bathroom of our new room, we venture out to the restaurant he has recommended. From the outside, it is unprepossessing. Dimly lit, with a ripped lace curtain hanging raggedly in the window, where something is scrawled in texture across the glass. Peter, still wary from the day's fiasco, is sceptical about what lies in wait for us, especially as it seems the manager's peace offering is preferable to him actually offering a refund on our rooms. The restaurant turns out to be a gem. It's owned by a couple who have had it for over 40 years, a husband who runs the front of house and his wife who does the cooking. They're expecting us. Amongst the locals dining, there's a long table set for seven with waiting pitchers of wine and water. The ensuing hospitality brings us all back to life. The children eat first, serves of homemade tagliatelle with tomato sauce and cubes of fried bread with tiny squares of omelette and sliced meats and cheese. We feast on risotto milanese, then veal with mushrooms, crumb chicken and fried fish and roast potatoes, salads of mixed leaves with tiny multicoloured tomatoes, a dish of wilted wild greens and baskets of homemade bread. Lured from the kitchen by her curiosity and our appreciative applause, The cook emerges where she accepts our accolades with a head-ducking, shy smile. In Italian, she addresses Marie. We use our phone to translate. She's happy about how many of us there are and the beauty of our children. 
She is herself a nonna and is thrilled that we are travelling with Peter's mother. After cheesecake and gelato and liqueurs and coffee with tiny sugared biscuits, we are beyond sated. We go to leave, and among the exchange of thanks and farewell salutations, La Nonna re-emerges from the kitchen, wiping sudsy hands on her apron. She motions to us to wait for a moment. Then she reappears, and after gently pressing the back of her hand against Sunday's cheek, presents my daughter with a punnet of strawberries. It is such a lovely gift, such an evening of riches. It is life-affirming and nourishing and humbling and a reminder that sometimes things that seem too good to be true are actually possible. That feeling describes so much of our experience of Italy. Just as things seem hopeless and lost, magic happens. We return to our hotel drowsily happy to have our faith further restored. In our absence, the temporary room has been expertly set up. Peter and I share the king-size bed downstairs with our youngest Yanni gleefully sandwiched in the middle. Artie sleeps on a mattress that's been wheeled to the foot of our bed. Marie, Lewis and Sunday have three trundle beds on the mezzanine loft above us. The aircon, though grumbling and complaining, is enough that we pull the crisp sheets up around our shoulders and fall into a deep, untroubled slumber. Tomorrow, though we do not know it yet... We will swim in Lake Como. We will emerge from sparkling fresh water, 400 metres deep, pooled at the foot of mountains. And while the children jump off a long wooden jetty, Peter and I will hobble across white stones to a food truck on the shore. Because this is Italy, the food truck will have an attached timber deck with bookcases, yellow-striped wallpaper and a chandelier. We will drink Prosecco while the hippie girl behind the counter makes us delicious pizzas and fried potatoes. Then she will show us behind the van where there are folded deck chairs we can use and when we ask how much we owe her, she will say proudly, These are free, like the beaches in Australia, no? And everything will be perfect. Better than a dream, because it is real. When it's time to leave Milan... I wake early, as I often do on a travelling day. I slip out of the hotel room and walk through the quiet streets. I pass a tabaccaria where two men, suited, are standing outside, downing short coffees Italian style, as though their cars filling up their tanks at a service station. I smile as I walk past. They smile back. Ciao, Bella, they say. Hello, beautiful. It's ridiculous how much this thrills me.